This is Matt Raymond at the Library of Congress. For the past nine years, book lovers of all ages have gathered in the nation's capital to celebrate reading at the Library of Congress's National Book Festival. This year, the library is proud to commemorate a decade of words and wonder at the 10th Annual National Book Festival on September 25, 2010. President and Mrs. Obama are honorary chairs of the event, which provides D.C. locals and visitors from around the country and around the world the opportunity to see and meet their favorite authors, illustrators, poets, and characters. The festival, which is free and open to the public, will be between 3rd and 7th Streets on the National Mall from 10 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. on September 25th, rain or shine. And today I have the privilege to speak with Jane Smiley, who will be at the festival discussing her highly acclaimed new book, Private Life. Jane has authored a number of unforgettable novels, including A Thousand Acres, which, is, well, which was awarded the Pulitzer Prize. In 2001, she was inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Letters, and in 2006, she received the Penn USA Lifetime Achievement Award for Literature. In addition to her novels for adults and teens, Jane has also been published in Vogue, The New York Times Magazine, The New Yorker, Allure, The Nation, and many others. Uh, Ms. Smiley, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Morning. Um, we'll talk a little bit about uh, the current work and, and uh, some of your past works and your progress. Uh, I do want to ask about your novel, Private Life. Uh, it's about a woman's experiences during the 1880s and uh, World War II. Was there any particular reason that you chose those particular time periods to focus on? Well, the novel is based on um, a sister of my grandfather. My grandfather had four much older sisters, and one of his sisters married a man who was quite notorious in his day for um, opposing Albert Einstein every step of the way from his little, uh, I, I don't know what you'd call it, his little hideout or his holdout out in um, San Francisco. And um, I thought that, man, that the uncle, the man himself, was rather interesting because he was so, um, I don't know, rigid in his opinions um, and also so self-aggrandizing. But what interested me really was his wife, who, how could you be married to someone like this, what it would be like, um, and how your life would be, and how you would, how your, what your sense of yourself would be, uh, married to such an overwhelming person. The, um, the character in the novel, the man in the novel, is not only uh, loud and intelligent and dynamic. He's also six foot six, so he is overwhelming in almost every way. And um, I think marriage is an interesting topic anyway. And um, I was just wanting to explore that idea of being married to someone who was totally overwhelming. Do you think that uh, women readers uh, will relate uh, to the character of Margaret Mayfield in terms of her struggles? Uh, you know, there's a generational historical divide between women now and then. Is there kind of a, a, a tangent that they can draw? Well, there's a generational divide, but marriage sort of remains uh, perennial. Um, uh, once you're alone in the house with that person, whether it's your husband or your wife, um, just because times have changed doesn't mean that that person isn't overwhelming. There's, there are plenty of um, marriages that are based on a kind of um, inequality in um, breathing space, let's put it that way. 
so I don't I don't think the book is takes place in a certain historical period and I'll go into why that is in a moment but but I don't think marriage itself has changed all that much except that um, we have the possibility of divorce and and Margaret does not in the novel um, but the um, characters live at the naval uh, shipbuilding facility at uh, Mare Island in San Francisco because the uh, male character, Andrew, um, his job is to tell the time. He goes to his observatory every day and he looks at the stars and he tells what time it is. And then um, at noon, the uh, sailor drops a time ball from the top of a tower and all of the ships in the harbor set their watches. So that's his job, which is an odd little uh, job. And But at the same time, um, history just passed through Mare Island in a torrent. And so someone like Margaret, who lives there, is, is aware of what's going on in the world because the world is present um, in her world. And so um, I thought that was an interesting place to be uh, in all those eras. She she moved there in about 1903, and um, she lives there or around there until uh, into the Second World War. So she's kind of has a seat in the front of the audience um, for seeing what's happening in the world, and that interested me too. You mentioned that uh, characters are based on actual people, members of your family. Uh, private life and, and doing that, is that a rarity for you, or um, are your characters typically just generated from your own imagination? Well, it's something of a rarity. Uh, I've occasionally touched on some characters that I knew in my books, but um, it's. I think once you get uh, fairly far into your career, um, it, your work is no longer autobiographical. Um, it's, it's more about ideas and more about events that um, you become interested in, and characters and their psychology sort of coalesce around events or settings or ideas, and you take um, something from one person and something from another person. Um, at least that's been my experience. But when you start out, you know, it's hard to um, understand characters. And so you scratch your head and you think, okay, well, I need I need a serial killer. Well, what if Aunt Jane were a serial killer? What would she be like? <laughs> you know? So, um, but as you get um, more used to it, then the characters start generating themselves. And that's sort of what happened here. Although... Um, there's a lot about um, the scientist on the internet. Um, every so often, you'll read a. I'll, I will have read an article that says TJJC was right, and then you read all the way down to the second page of the article, and the last paragraph is about this person's um, wonderful machine that was taken away from him at customs and is probably now being used by the CIA to do something. And you realize that, um, you know, he has generated a following, but they are maybe as as uh, misguided as he was in his day. Although I have to say that um, now that dark matter has been discovered, I am certain that if um, 
TJJC were alive, he would feel vindicated. <laughs> um, in terms of your own life, your father was not present for much of your childhood. How did that affect who you are, and did, did that affect your writing? Um, well, I, hmm, that's an interesting question. I don't think anybody's ever asked that question before. Um, there was a male presence. My grandfather was around, and my grandfather was a very uh, strong male. Um, my grandparents were lots and lots of fun, and um, I think my father was, might have been more of an authoritarian personality than than my grandparents were. Um, I think I am a kind of person who who values freedom and always wants to do the thing that she wants to do and I don't think that my father would have allowed that so there might have been a personality clash there mm-hmm. uh, go ahead I'm sorry so that's that's the way I think about it you know I don't think it was a bad thing actually given his personality and my personality uh, another of your influences as a writer is William Shakespeare, and I'm thinking in particular of King Lear and your book, uh, A Thousand Acres. What was it What was it about King Lear? What, what sort of captured your imagination about that? Well, we read King Lear a lot um, in high school and college and then graduate school, so I must have read it four or five times with various teachers. And I never truly believed that he was not at fault. I always believed that they were letting, that the teachers were letting him off the hook. And I could never figure out why that was. Um, there's a little scene between Goneril and Reagan after Lear had, and his knights have rioted in the castle the night before. And they're scratching their heads and wondering why he needs to have a hundred knights. Um, tearing down the tapestries, overturning the um, tables, and letting the dogs, uh, you know, tear up everything. And I always was sympathetic to them, and I thought their desire for order um, was overlooked by the uh, critical establishment. And so, in some sense, I I, I wrote uh, a thousand acres to address the issues of. You know, well, what about these women? Why are they always defined as absolute evil? Why does no one ever allow them to have a point of view? They were truly untouchable, um, Goneril and Reagan. Even the most feminist scholars and critics would never, never defend Goneril and Reagan. So that, uh, that aroused my contrary, contrarian impulses, and I thought, well, what's their point of view? Is uh, sort of a retelling or a recrafting of the stories of someone like William Shakespeare, is that daunting? I mean, I think of, uh, you know, this, the, the sequel to Gone with the Wind, and, and how do you compare to Margaret Mead? I mean, what, what kind of reaction do you get to that? Um. You don't mean Margaret Mead. Margaret Mitchell. I, you know, I had, you know, in my office I have a poster of Margaret Mead, and I was just looking at that, and <laughs> that name got yeah, stuck. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's funny to think of the two of them uh, sitting in the same room chatting, you know. Um, well, I think when I started out, um, before I wrote A Thousand Acres, um, I wrote another recasting of a great work or a set of great works, which is The Greenlanders, which in some sense was a recasting of Icelandic sagas. 
And, you know, I'm never, what, what can I say? I'm always more interested than I am daunted. Sometimes I'll start in on something and I'll get about halfway through and I'll think, oh dear, what am I, what in the world am I doing? Who do I think I am, you know? But in fact, that project is so interested, interesting to me that um, it carries me along and I don't, I think of it as a response to um, the work rather than as a challenge to the author. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, you can respond to works in a lot of different ways. And um, one of the ways for me is to ponder them. I, I was supported in my work by William Shakespeare himself, who, for whom King Lear was a recasting of earlier stories. And I, I guess I thought, well, if he can do it, I can do it. <laughs> I actually um, felt, after I finished writing A Thousand Acres, I felt a lot closer to Shakespeare because I now understood the um, the complexities and the difficulties of the plot and how to make it all work and how difficult it was. And I, I felt like, um, you know, I was saying to him, boy, that was hard. I, I have a feeling you thought it was hard, too. So I felt a sort of um, artistic camaraderie um, with him that I hadn't felt when I was a student. Now you uh, mentioned the other thing that it's true. The other thing about recasting works, or which I've done, um, I think three times now, because I also did that in Ten Days in the Hills when I recast um, the Decameron. Um, um, it's fair, it's, you know, if you're sitting in California and you're reading books and and you and the book are kind of equal partners in whatever you're doing, it's much different to do that um, than to be walking around London or living in London and seeing statues and of of these great writers. You're, you're more daunted when you're hmm. close to them from <clears throat> from a far distance, like from California. They don't look so big. They they look as big as a book rather than as big as a giant. Hmm. Uh, the Greenlanders uh, stemmed from uh, your experience in Iceland uh, when you were on a Fulbright scholarship. Uh, I read that it, it, in a lot of respects that wasn't a pleasant experience for you. Oh, to be alone in Iceland when it was getting darker and darker yeah. every day and to not be a very good speaker of the language and to be stuck in my little room by myself um, with only one friend, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, what can I, it, it wasn't a good or a bad experience. It was just a totally interesting experience. Um, I, I struggled with the language. I went to my classes. I did what I could. Um, uh, I made a few friends, which I enjoyed a lot. And I, um, I was, perennially amazed by the landscape because mm. it was a volcanic landscape and there were no trees mm. and some things about it were just very grand and um, some things about it were just totally um, fascinating like you would always you always knew when you're walking down the street in Reykjavik who were the Americans and who were the Icelanders if you could hear them talking, they were Icelanders. If you couldn't hear them talking, they were Americans. Mm. Icelanders were used to shouting above the wind, and so you could always hear them talking. 
so for me, it was a, a really interesting experience of being in a culture that was quite different um, from my own. And I, I also read lots and lots of books, you know, and it's dark 22 hours a day. Mm. There's plenty of time to read. And um, so I got caught up on a lot of reading from things like Anna Karenina and stuff that I hadn't read before. And, of course, during the summer, you could go outside and read a newspaper at midnight, right? Well, yes. Then the sun began to come up, and the days got lighter, and um, and that was really amazing, too. And then I did have a friend who had a car, and so we did do some driving around, and it was wonderful to see the landscape. So, in some sense, Iceland was a turning point for me, and it wasn't that I... And I was aware that that was happening, that... That certain parts of my um, future were kind of taking shape and gelling while I was there. And that's not always a terribly pleasant experience, but it's not a bad experience. It's a good experience. After you uh, got your bachelor's degree, you worked on an archaeology dig in Europe. How did that come about? Well, um, my, my first husband... And I wanted to go to Europe, and we heard about that you could go work on a dig in England, and in this case, it was at Winchester Cathedral. Mm. Um, I don't quite know how we heard about it, but it was just a job, um, and and a very they gave you room and board basically to do this. Um, he was a medievalist, and I was interested in medieval things, so it seemed like a great thing to do. I was a terrible digger; I would always dig down rather than scraping across. So they finally removed me from the dig so that I could do no more damage and they had me go around every time someone found a coin or something. I, I was the person who went and put it in a little bag and marked um, where it had been found. Um, but the the dig was just below the cathedral. It was really quite um, uh inspiring in some ways to be surrounded by um, that architecture and um, and it was really fun. You say the word inspiring did that trip in any way inspire any of your later works? Oh I, absolutely because one of the um, one of my fellow diggers um, then went on to do archaeology in Greenland and he and his girlfriend, we, we had a, a little room um, in a house, which seemed rather primitive to me, but this guy and his girlfriend lived in a tent behind the house. And um, when it came time to uh, dig the old tannery pit, and you know, in the Middle Ages, they tanned with manure, um, he and his girlfriend volunteered to dig up the tannery pit. And so he would hold her by her ankles, and she would just dig, <laughs> dig down and down and down into the this six hundred year old manure pit. Hmm. And um, and I remember they didn't take any showers for about the three or four days that it took them because why worry? You know, they were just living in a tent. And I thought they were really amazing. And so um, I I stayed in touch with him. So when I wrote the Greenlanders, he had done Greenland archaeology, and I got in touch with him and said, would you read my book? And he did, and um, 
and told me which what was right and what was wrong about what I thought about the Greenlanders. Mm-hmm. So um, I was just enthralled by medieval things for a very long time, by the architecture, by the way that people lived, by the way they looked in pictures, um, by the whole Europeanness of it. Um, that and I guess that lingered, you know, because um, uh, because I well, I went back to the Boccaccio with great enthusiasm too. So there's just something about that period that I always found interesting. Well, before I let you go, are there any uh, upcoming projects that you want to let your readers or fans know about? Yes, um, for young readers, the the uh, first volume of my books called The Georges and the Jewels. That's now out in paperback. And the second volume, which is called A Good Horse, is out in hardback at the end of October. And um, for others, you know, I've I've also written a book that will be out in early October about the invention of the computer, Hmm. which turns out to be a very dramatic um, uh, set of events full of absolute interesting characters. There's about eight characters in my book. Is that, non, is that non-fiction or historical yes, fiction? it's non-fiction. Okay. These are true life characters. Um, everyone from the very famous Alan Turing to the very obscure Tommy Flowers, who was Alan Turing's um, colleague, and from uh, John Vincent at Nassau uh, to Conrad Zusa, who really was uh, inventing the computer in Germany and had a really hair-raising set of experiences. So that book will be out in early October, and I just was interviewed in Wired for that book. This is a story that people need to know, not just because the computer is so important, but also because the story itself is just amazing, and I loved writing the book. Well, Jane Smiley, thank you so much for taking time out to talk with us today. Oh, my pleasure. And the new book, uh, again, is Private Life, and we look forward to uh, hearing more from her about that at the Poetry and Prose Pavilion at the National Book Festival. That's September 25th, 2010 on the National Mall. Can I say one more thing? Certainly say one more thing. um, The the computer book is called uh, The Man Who Invented the Computer. And that that being uh, one man versus eight eight people? John Vincent. It's John Vincent Atanasa. Okay. The man who invented the computer. Well, that's certainly it's certainly something that uh, lives on today with the internet and all of our daily lives. <laughs> that's that should be interesting. We look we look forward to that one. Uh, again, National Book Festival, September twenty fifth, from ten a.m. to five thirty p.m. on the National Mall. This is Matt Raymond from the Library of Congress. Thank you all for listening. <laughs>